Good afternoon. Hope you had a good lunch. You are the stalwarts. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the ones that didn't have too many other commitments. <laughs> we seem to always have a Sunday afternoon attrition. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> well, let's, let's, let's talk about the different arenas that, that in which mindfulness works to perform its magical transformation of uh, personality and unwholesome conditioning. What we talked about earlier was basically the arena of daily life. And to recapitulate, when you have mindfulness in daily life, there's two beneficial results. One is that by being mindful in various circumstances as they arise, you, uh, you are aware of more choices, more options, you have more control over your emotions uh, and your behaviors, and therefore you can improve the quality of your reaction to a particular event. And then secondly, to the degree that you have persistent mindfulness and, and you hold what's taking place in awareness and you direct attention to aspects of it as appropriate, that's what mindfulness means. Awareness is functioning and as a result, attention is being used appropriately. That you become conscious of your behaviors and their appropriateness or inappropriateness, and their consequences, desirable or undesirable. And holding this in, holding this in your awareness, and paying attention to it as appropriate, has the result that positive patterns of behavior are reinforced, and negative patterns of behavior begin to be uh, the, the habitual force behind them becomes weakened and uh, an internal programming starts to take place so that you're less likely to engage in those emotional reactions and behaviors in the future. So that, that's, mm -hmm. that's a summary of what we talked about earlier. So these two, two different things that are happening. And the second one I think is quite obviously more important than the first. Uh, although the first is quite wonderful, uh, because the second one uh, can lead to uh, more permanent changes in your in your inner programming, more permanent changes in your uh, emotional reactivity and your behaviors. And it goes without saying, permanent changes of a positive nature are far superior to particular instances of, of uh, improvement. And if you think about it just a little bit, you'll realize that it is possible for one to occur without so much of the other occurring, because you may have enough mindfulness to modify your behavior, but you may not, you may not be as mindful as necessary to really produce the kind of deep changes 
if, if you're mindful, it's going to have some effect no matter what. Don't, don't get me wrong there. To be mindful at all is going to have some kind of permanent effect. But the more mindful you are, the, the greater the magnitude of that effect. And so that means being more mindful as events are unfolding and being mindful of their longer-term consequences. So, in other words, if you have sustained mindfulness, as a result of your practice, you become a very mindful person and you begin to experience mindfulness as a regular part of uh, your ordinary life experience, what you and what those people around you are going to see is you start being transformed in all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of things you used to do that you don't do anymore and things that you didn't used to do that you do. And that's why it seems like mindful. mindfulness is magic. Because you're just meditating and you're just trying to be mindful as you can in your daily life. And without quite knowing exactly why, you seem to be changing. So that's, that's the one arena. But if you think about it too, in these instances, they only come up when there's a certain kind of trigger. And then, to a large degree, everything that happens is going to be fairly specific to a certain kind of event, a certain kind of situation. Um, after all, the same thing can happen in two different situations, and in one situation, it always pushes one of your buttons. But in other situations, it doesn't. So it's very it's situational dependent, and it's dependent upon triggers to bring it up. And then, of course, the other thing about it is that um, you've got to be you've got to be capable of being mindful when this is happening. So to maximize the effectiveness, you have to practice being mindful when it's easy because it's hard to be mindful when some really disturbing event comes. When some, when, when some major button of yours is pushed, you're, it's going to be really hard to stay mindful. As a matter of fact, most of the time, you're not even going to remember that you should have been mindful until way after things have happened. So to have this kind of benefit take place, you need to practice mindfulness as much as possible when it's easy to. So practice mindfulness when it's easy. Practice mindfulness in meditation and practice mindfulness off the cushion when it's easy. And then you'll have the ability to practice mindfulness when it really counts. So, you know, we were talking about making salad and making sandwiches over <laughs> We do similar kinds of things all the time. Relatively automatic thing. And for sure, anytime, anytime you're lost in thought about something else, you're not being very mindful. We can take that as absolutely a given. So the very first step in being mindful in daily life 
is, you know, to train yourself to be mindful in daily life, is to try, whenever you're making a salad or sandwiches or driving a car or things like that, to remember to just be really present and not get lost in all of your thoughts and fantasies. And what you'll probably find is that at first, this is giving up something that you're very attached to for a variety of reasons. Um, we tend to think the present is boring and that our imaginations and fantasies and projections and memories are more interesting. Uh, and, and you have to get past that perception to be able to be in the present enough to discover that it's not really true. And the other thing is that you will probably find you have this sense that, well, I'm doing important stuff when I'm thinking about these other things. The stuff that I'm thinking about when I make salad is, it's, you know, it's stuff that has to be thought about. <laughs> Well, what you will discover as you begin practicing mindfulness and you encounter this urge to think about those things, and if rather than just allowing yourself to get lost in those, you just mindfully observe these thoughts coming up and aware of what they're, what they're about and what their nature is, it will begin, you'll begin to realize that I've already thought about this a dozen times. <laughs> Thinking about it one more time isn't going to make any difference. Or you find you're worrying about something that might happen, but based on past experience, it isn't going to. So, one of the things that will stand in your way is feeling like all this thinking that you traditionally do is important. And one of the things that mindfulness will help you to realize is that a small part of it is. You know, 5%, 10%, some small part of it is genuinely useful and valuable, no, no doubt about it. But we do way more of it than really is, is worthwhile. The other thing that you might notice, you might have already noticed this, but as you become more mindful, you're for sure going to notice, is that a lot of times the, let's call them solutions to the problems, but it, it encompasses more than that. But a lot of times the solutions to the problems emerge into consciousness when you're not thinking about it, when you're not mulling it over. And what this reveals to you is that those, those, those unconscious parts of your mind keep working on the problems or the plans or the situations even when you're doing something even when they're not in, not conscious of it all and you're doing something else now I've discovered something really interesting about this I'm trying to write this book that I'm working on you know really have trouble trying to express something I know exactly what I want to say. I write it out. It takes uh, um, a, a two-page paragraph with 14-line sentences, <laughs> lots of adjectives and thousands of prepositions. 
then the fellow I'm working with edits it down to a phrase that he tacks on uh -huh. to the end of another sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at it and I start rearranging things and trying to figure out how on earth I can say what I want in a way that anybody's going to be able to read. And at a certain point I realize, okay, time to do something else. Go work on a different page, uh, go for a walk, something else. And then I'll come back and, oh, well, yeah, I can see how that, why didn't I see that right away? Neil, I, I, if you, I'm sure you've already experienced that to some degree. But the whole point is, we waste a lot of our conscious capacity on things that our unconscious faculties are ultimately best suited to take care of. And, you know, we can reduce the amount of time that we entertain those things to just enough to, to meet the needs more efficiently. That means that a lot of times when you're making sandwiches, you don't really need to think about anything else. Or when you're driving a car, or when you're walking to the photocopier, or, you know, I know what you do in your life, but you can think of a thousand instances. These are opportunities to practice mindfulness, and the first step is to just come into the present, not let those thoughts carry you away. And, of course, the physical sensations that are rising and passing away, microsecond by microsecond, are in the present. Your body, physical sensations, it is the quickest, most certain way to bring yourself into the present. Right. So, if you're making the salad, just totally get into the feel of the tomato and the feel of the knife and the movements and so on and so forth. But that's just, all that's really done is gotten you out of la-la land into the present. So the next thing to do then is to enjoy slicing up the tomatoes while you're practicing being peripherally aware of your environment and most especially your mind. Am I happy? Yeah, actually. I like doing this. You see, that seems like such a simple, obvious thing, but it's an exercise of introspective awareness. Uh, there's, I uh, turn the tomato over and it's got this ugly soft spot. Ooh, I just felt a twinge of annoyance there. Mm. Like, like if the grocer was here, I would have had a word with him. <laughs> that's introspective awareness. There are, you know, your, your life is filled with continuous series of events to which your mind is responding. And as you start to discover this, the present isn't so boring after all. It's very, it's very interesting. And it's really easy to practice mindfulness when you're making salad or when you're eating a meal. Feel the weight of the spoon. You, know, you taste, you chew, you swallow. You notice the reactions of your mind. You notice the reactions of your body. You just you practice being fully present using all of your conscious faculties in those easy situations. And it's doing it in those easy situations that's going to make it possible to do it in the more difficult ones. Okay. 
That is not going to solve all your problems, though. Because you'll probably die before you've sufficiently corrected for all the kind of habitual conditioned responses that make your life less than ideally perfect. So that's where we come to the second arena, which is a very powerful one, which is meditation. Because in meditation, there's a particular stage you get to, um, and states of meditation that you'll experience from time to time, whatever stage you're at, where the mind is very clear, it's very calm, and things begin to arise out of the subconscious into conscious awareness. And this, well, initially you'll find a lot of trivial so what stuff coming up. But when, when you have sufficient mental calm for trivial stuff to come up, if you ignore it, more significant stuff starts to come up. And you'll have you'll have mundane insights. You, if you study the Dharma, you'll have mundane insights into what some Dharma issue really means. And there'll be a really big temptation to stop following your breath or whatever practice you're doing. And, oh, let me think about this one. That's because your mind is functioning very clearly. And you're allowing the subconscious mind, the subconscious part of your mind has been trying to sort out the real meaning of this particular dharma issue for a long time. And now it's found some connections that it wasn't able to find before and in the quiet, calm meditation it can bring them up and present them and so you have an insight and it's wonderful. But that's not the right place for that to be going on. What I'm really doing right now is I'm describing the state of mind. The state of mind where stuff comes up from the unconscious. It just kind of pops up and makes itself known. This this is the state of mind where some wonderful work can happen. You'll, there you'll, this state of mind provides an opportunity for some of your deep unconscious conditioning and the past events and the associated emotions and things like that to start coming up. Very often, it'll first begin to come up as emotions that you won't even know why you're feeling. You feel anxiety, or you feel sad, or you feel fear, but you don't know why. There's no reason at all. No, nothing that you're aware of. Um, if you are just with those emotions and let them be there, and let them become as strong as they want to, then having given them that welcome and acceptance will allow whatever it is that's behind those emotions to start to come up. And it'll take two forms. You'll have, you'll have memories of actual events, or you'll have imaginative visions that whether you realize it or not, contain the emotional essence of some, some foundational uh, event in your life that has molded who you are. And 
the same thing. If you can sit there and just accept that if it's a memory, instead of uh, instead of reacting to it, and you're in the perfect you're in the perfect position to recall a psycho- psychologically traumatic event without reacting emotionally to it, because you've already accepted the emotions, and now the memory's coming up. And you can just look at it and accept it for what it is. You can hold it in consciousness. You can allow it to be there without judging and without reacting. If it's if it's some sort of a, an image or vision that has nothing to do with your life, but is, is very emotionally powerful. You do the same thing with it. You just let it be there. Look at it. Examine it. See what it has to tell you. And it's not about figuring anything out. It's just letting it be there and exposing it to the full power of your conscious uh, awareness and attention. Uh, you do this when something's come up that's strong enough to keep you from staying with the meditation object. You stay with the meditation object and you, you just let it come up by itself. You don't direct attention to it till it's demanding the attention. If you direct the attention to it too soon, it'll run back and hide. It's shy. You know? I, I've been here your whole life and you haven't wanted to look at me. <laughs> So, you let it come out, and then when it's demanding your attention, when it keeps pulling your attention, then it's, then it's the time to uh, go face-to-face with it. Not confrontationally. Just, just be there. It, it has a right to be there. It has causes. You don't know what they are, but it's there for a reason. And just be with it. And allow yourself to to accept it, explore it in a very accepting way. What these things are, whether they're actual memories or whether they're other kinds of images and things like that that have hidden within them something from your past. But they have played an important role in molding your personality and determining not just your reaction to some specific kind of event in some specific situation, but to a whole range of events and situations. So you see, they're they're coming from a much deeper level than the sort of things that come up in daily life. And all you have to do is let them be there. And some of them may have to come back a few times. a lot of times it is not what you would describe as pleasant. You know, to have to sit with uh, a feeling of anxiety that you don't know where it comes from for a while isn't pleasant. But it's it's definitely, you can do it and it's not that hard to do, especially if you're in a meditative state, you're calm, you're peaceful. The important thing is an emotion is there but you're comfortable, you're happy, you're safe, you know. So I can let this emotion be here. 
I don't, I don't have to react against it. I can just let it be there. It might not be pleasant, but it's not intolerable. And the same thing when, when the memories and the images come up. You are aware that, you know, hey, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm comfortable, I'm safe. That was a long time ago. I haven't thought of that in years. Um, the person that did that to me, dead and gone. Um, so, I can let this be here. I can, you know, I can look at it. I can be objective, non-judgmental, non-reactive. Those are all words you've heard in connection with mindfulness practice. Okay? What holding this in consciousness does is it communicates to those deep subconscious parts of your psyche very important information. It communicates precisely those things that you are aware of. So if you're aware that you're not threatened by something that happened in the past, that's communicated. If you are aware that the circumstances in which that happened no longer exist, that's communicated. If you are aware that the seven-year-old child they happen to doesn't exist anymore, you're a 42-year-old adult or whatever it is. If you're aware of that, that gets communicated. And that changes those things that have been there in the background, affecting and altering your behaviors for all of these many years. And it has, it has a very widespread impact on, on your mind and on your behavior. It's not, as I say, it's not like it's limited to a specific kind of response to a specific kind of situation. These are those deep formative things. If you've been a person who tends to have low self-esteem, your low self-esteem came from somewhere, but it's manifesting in a thousand different ways. And you could, like trimming the leaves and branches off, you could deal with every single instance in which your low self-esteem is a problem to you, but it sure take a long time. It wouldn't be very effective. But if you can get down to the root of where your low self-esteem came from. And if you can see that in a totally different way, if you can understand it, if you can put it in the perspective of the person that you've since become, the genuine capabilities that you do have, then it loses, it loses that power that it once had. See what I mean? This, this is called purification of the mind in the traditional Buddhist literature. In meditation, you go through a process of purification. It often involves unpleasant emotions and unpleasant memories and unpleasant visions. But, it pure, if, but if you approach them in the right way, if you don't hide from them, if you don't try to push them away, it allows your mind to become purified of these things once and for all, and to begin a process of deep, intuitive reorganization of how you perceive yourself and how you perceive the world that is going to change the way you are. Now, if anything sounds more like magic than that, I'd like to find out. And this purification of mind actually has to happen as a part of the 
Dharma process. Because until, until you've managed to work through these things, there are going to be obstacles to, to your practice. There are going to be obstacles to your meditation. They're going to stand in the way of insight. So, on, you know, on the one hand, it's a wonderful way to have some powerful psychotherapy done to you and make your life better. On the other hand, it's an unavoidable part of the process to truly, to truly reach the goal that you would like to achieve. You're going to have to do this sooner or later anyway. There's no better place to do it than in meditation. Any comments? What would be even more magical for me, uh, for my thinking, would be if by transforming or healing these patterns, if it would have an impact, say, on the family or the community or the society at large. Do you think that does happen? Oh, absolutely. It it certainly does. Um, And... I've seen it and, and, and been told many times how people who have started practicing and have practiced effectively, they change and their relationships improve. The interactions with their family, with the people they work with, they become, uh, they become a kind of person that uh, has positive, much more positive effect on everyone and everything around them. In terms of the impact on society, too, one of the things a lot of people have, you may have grown up in a religious environment that left you with a lot of uh, not especially functional ideas about good and bad and sin and right and wrong and your self-worth. And culturally, you may have grown up also with attitudes that were basically xenophobic, sexist, racist, and so on and so forth. And even if you feel like you've left those behind, they're still affecting you. And they create conflicts. Um, For example, if you grew up in a racist community, you may since have come to the conclusion that everybody deserves to be treated the same but you still may find it really difficult to be with and interact with people of certain races or color. And that has ramifications. Um, If we look at society, I'm I'm just kind of dwelling on the racist thing, it's easy, and also I heard her talk last night at Meet Tucson. Um, In this country, a lot of people have grown up in, in communities where racism was really strong. And a lot of those people have matured and felt like, to a large degree, they've left that behind. But they still will react to people of certain racist colors in ways, and to news, you know, when, uh, when there's news about crime and crime rates in certain neighborhoods, Without intending to, they're still making some of those racist associations and they're not seeing things particularly clearly. This can carry over to candidates that they vote for. 
maybe or maybe not, but for sure it's going to carry over to the kind of small talk they make at coffee break. It has an impact. And there are a lot of people in our society who, who think they've gotten past their sexist views, but are actually still sustaining a lot of that sexism in, in society, in the workplace, and, and in other environments. So these two, these two are some of the things that you get terrified of. And absolutely all of them are going to have an impact beyond yourself. I mean, it just goes back to the principle that we're all interconnected. Nothing that happens within you, good or bad, is going to be without its ramifications for those around you. And sometimes you have no idea how far they reach, how far they go. Does that answer your question? Um, it did, and sort of brought up another one. So. Just to give an example, so when, when I was a young child, I was sexually molested. And so I've worked on that um, through spiritual practices, therapy, you know, personal work on it. And I think I have um, purified aspects of my mind related to that. Yet when I look in the world, there is just so many instances of childhood sexual abuse and children being sold into sexual slavery and so I guess that's the part that I was I was sort of wondering about in my mind that for you know thousands and thousands of years spiritual practices and meditation practices are being taught Yet there seems to be so much in the world that is still seriously violent uh, toward others. Um, and I'm just wondering, I, I would, when I said that it would be more magical for me, it would be more magical if these sort of individual or even communal practices really vibrated out into the world in a, in a bigger sense. Well, that's something that, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, mm -hmm. I'd like to see that happen. And we've talked here a number of times and about making some kind of larger change in, in society. Um, something beyond just changing yourself and how best to do that. And uh, I don't have answers yet, but I think about it a lot. And I've read some interesting books that I'd be happy to recommend to people here. One, one new book that I'm reading, it's actually quite good, I, I saw it was in the library here. It's uh, Money, Sex, Karma, War, I think is the name of it. <laughs> anyway, it's by David Loy, and uh, it's very good. And there's another one that I read recently called The, the New Social Face of Buddhism. Mm. And these, these are things that are pointing in the direction of how, how we can take the things that we learn in our own practice and, and use them on a, on a larger scale to benefit a larger number of people. But mindfulness... Your practice of mindfulness 
is going to have impacts on other people. And then hopefully we'll find a way to amplify that, discover a whole new domain of magic of mindfulness. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. <laughs> I've got this far. I've seen, I've seen very clearly that all of the principles that apply to the Dharma practice of an individual apply just as well to a, a cultural group of any size, including a nation. So, you know, Dharma practitioners collectively as a Dharma group can operate with exactly the same principles that you do as an individual collectively. And if we could somehow or another reach the level where whole nations do this, then something really amazing would happen. And this is connected with realizing that consciousness, consciousness permeates every level, level of reality. So, therefore, what that tells me is that these same principles are universally applicable at many different levels. Because when you look at the national level, um, it's it's the same thing. It's greed, it's exactly, yeah. clinging, it's delusion. Nations behave like just like individuals. Corporations behave just like individuals. And the wonderful thing is we know that all individuals don't have to behave the same way. There's other ways possible. Well, that's why the Supreme Court gave corporations the rights of the <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't figure that one out. No, I don't understand it. How wise they were. Do you it was so that we could recognize this and recognize that that's a level of organization in which we can, to which we can apply the Dharma and make some larger scale changes than we can in our individual lives. But the thing that I found really interesting is, is I, I, that Supreme Court decision has extremely harmful ramifications, but there is uh, an element of truth in it that's really quite profound, that, that corporations are quite comparable to individual people in so many ways. question about the mm -hmm. you're talking about the purification of the mind and these emotional things that come up and sometimes you don't really identify them and I think I when we were in Manzanita Village I think I had a, a bout of that um, but this is something that can continue on in the future it just keeps happening sometimes yeah it, will, it, it, it will continue to happen until until you gotten rid of all the stuff you need to get rid of. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is a relevant question, but this, this purification of the mind, um, is, this, is this something that can take other forms as well out, outside of meditation? Like Sometimes I feel like I'm going through this purificatory process, you know, and sometimes I have these experiences. But sometimes I'll be, you know, I'll have a really tough day. It seems like everything goes wrong. And, and things are breaking, and someone yells at me, and, and 
seems like there are all these, almost like, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about ripening and negative karma and how it ripens on you uh, in, in many different ways if you're purifying, that it might ripen in a bad dream or, or you might have an accident, um, you'll be fine. Um, so is this, would you, would you say that this is also part of the purificatory process? It, it is. There's not. There is some overlap between the purification that happens in meditation and the purification that happens in, in daily life. Both of them involve uh, you becoming consciously aware of uh, buried conditioning that is influencing you, and the. The thing is, if you're mindful and it happens in daily life, really good work gets done. Yeah. But if you're not, you just either reinforce those same old yeah. bad habits or you bury them. Yeah, and this is the same in Tibetan Buddhism. You know that, that, that yeah. I'm mean, sure you notice that if you if you relate to it in a way that's wholesome, then it does purify. And if you relate to it in a way which is just linked back to that the, co the causes of that yeah. negativity, then it then it reinforces it. So that's right. So, yeah. but you would say that if you if you if you can be mindful mm -hmm. and conscious of, of what's happening and, and how you how you're feeling without without necessarily being reactive, mm -hmm. then it would be part of the yeah. And, and both of these processes, ideally, they would if they take place side by side, on the cushion and off, then uh, the process of purification will be completed much more quickly. Oh, great! That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify on that then, um, in everyday life, the emotions will come up in the same way as they do in meditation, at certain stages the conditions are right. Mm -hmm. But are you also saying that it, it may take physical form too, and that it's worth us recognizing that? What do you mean by physical form? So the purification process, which uh, in meditation is an emotional, an emotional mental one, may take a physical form. Like a car running into your car. Or a sickness. Yeah. Or a no, it's your reaction to it. A, a car can run into into your car, and you react in a particular way. Um, you know, it, the process of purification doesn't cause somebody else to run into your car. But if you have mindfulness, somebody running into your car can become an opportunity for purification. If you see, if you see what reacting re reactions you have and you understand them clearly, you know. And, and they're everything from wanting to kill the other driver to trying to figure out how you can scam the insurance company and make enough money to retire. Mm -hmm. These are both unwholesome reactions. Mm -hmm. And you, you, could either, uh, you, you could either react totally out of your past conditioning, totally out of your karma, and uh, <coughs> beat up the other driver or scam the insurance company, which is just going to reinforce the same karma that caused, caused you to feel like reacting that way in the first place. Or with mindfulness, you can recognize it. Uh, you can see that it's inappropriate in terms of, in, in, in terms of your, your genuine goals and purposes. And then it becomes an opportunity for purification. 
but in no way can your karma cause somebody else to drive into Yeah, that wasn't going to be my example because that gets complicated. Sorry. My example was more going to be a headache or some kind of illness. Okay. In, well, certainly in, in that case, that your mind can have a much greater effect on your body. And um, as a matter of fact, a headache in meditation or out of meditation, either one, is sometimes a manifestation of some uh, inner conflict that you're not aware of, uh, of, the, of exactly the kind of nature that we're talking about. So, so you can either treat the headache, wish it was going away, or be open to the possibility that the cause of the headache is going to reveal itself and you can deal with it in a totally different way. So the, the, the idea of this purification, I hope that's all clear to you now, but let me just summarize it. We go around with a massive amount of unconscious conditioning that predisposes us to react and behave in particular ways. Right? And a lot of the time, the way we react is not wholesome and not good for us. When you can be mindful of that and of all of its ramifications, the process of being mindful gives those deep unconscious processes an opportunity to reprogram with the result that your reactions and your behaviors change. That's the summary right there. Right? Got it? Pretty clear, pretty simple. Now, this is actually what Dharma is about. Now, one person is prone to violence due to their conditioning and another person is prone to, to insecurity, maybe even being a victim due to their conditioning. All of our acquired conditioning, which is what we've been talking about so far, is highly individualistic. It's different for every one of us. For any one of us, it causes us to see things in a particular way and react to them in a particular way. But it's more or less unique to us. More or less, there's other people like us that also perceive things in the same way for the same reason and react to them in the same way for the same reason. But it's an acquired conditioning. But in the same way that that conditioning causes us to perceive things in a particular way and react in a particular way, there is an innate predisposition that we have to see things in a particular way and to react to them in a particular way. And that's what the Dharma is about. And that's the ultimate magic of mindfulness. Is that exactly the same process applies there. The, the innate predisposition that we all have is to fabricate an ego self and cling to that as me and mine. And we also have this... Uh, inherent sense that we are a separate, single, enduring entity. 
And of course, these two things are often quite mixed up with each other. And we also have a predisposition to assume that the way we perceive things is the way they really are. Even though over and over again we find out that different people see things differently, it doesn't really shake that deep intuitive conviction that, well, things are pretty much, I have an accurate view of reality. And it's amazing how many times we can realize that we were mistaken and still assume that we're right next time. In um, when well, the general question would be like, what is true? And then the specific question is, I've heard a Buddhist teacher say that even if a husband is battering a wife and there are these terrible things, that the woman should stay in the relationship because she should deepen her 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 perception about how she's seeing what's going on and develop compassion. That's true. No, no, that's true. It's, it's, I want, it's a very famous teacher, and he said it very publicly and then taken to task, so I don't know. But I'm, I'm just wondering, I mean, as, <laughs> if you'll comment on that. I mean, because I wonder what truth is, like when people get divorced, or they put their children up for adoption, or they, you know, you make these decisions that alter lives that could be perceived as, mm-hmm. as reaction, or cruel, or, that, that, and what, what is the truth? When, when you're applying these to knowing that if we dig deeper and we'll see we're reacting to something, I mean, I know that, I don't know that, hear that, you know, that, that you know, there's something underneath <coughs> that is nothing <laughs> underneath it, but when you're leading daily life, excuse me, and those things happen, I mean, maybe just even for you, like what you would say about that. Well, I'd say something very different about that particular situation. <laughs> but, but see, part of the problem is not only that we believe that we're right, we believe that there is a correct view. And we believe it's accessible to us. And, and, and even if we become convinced that it's not accessible to us, which rarely happens, but occasionally somebody, you know, you know will come to the conclusion that, well, I, I'll, I'll never understand the way things really are. But they still believe there is a way things really are. <laughs> and this, uh, this, uh, that is this very inherent predisposition that we have. There is a way things are. It is accessible. And most of the time we assume that we've nailed it. We know how things are. <laughs> So, so these, so these are our, our perception. Our perception is that we are a self that we think that we think we are in a world of other things which have their own kind of independent reality, which we have a pretty good idea of what that is. So that's the that's the that's the perception that we have due to inherent predispositions. That's not true. But associated with that is we also react 
in a particular way. We react through craving, through desire and aversion. Because we have the same thing. We have an innate conditioning that leads us to do that. So in the same way that your acquired conditioning can be overcome by holding a more accurate perception in consciousness, that's what I was talking about earlier. You apply mindfulness and the result is you're perceiving things in a better way. And we won't, we won't slip into saying perceiving things exactly the way they really are because that's the deeper problem. But we perceive things in a much more, much more realistic way than the unconscious conditioning has in the past. If mindfulness can hold in consciousness a more realistic perception of reality than the innate perception that we have due to our inherent, inherent rather than acquired tendencies, then the mind will reprogram at this very deepest, most fundamental of all levels, and our intuitive perception of reality changes as a result. That's the work of the Dharma. You follow me here? So, mindfulness is mindfulness is a crucial tool. But you need to have an experience that you can hold in consciousness that is an improvement upon the one that's driving your deep intuitive perception. So mindfulness by itself won't do that. requires a combination of other things. And that's why, if you're familiar with the Buddha's Eightfold Path, it wasn't mindfulness, 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 <laughs> mindfulness, mindfulness, and mindfulness. <laughs> there are other things, and when they all come together in the right way, They allow you to have experiences that, in which it becomes obvious that your intuitive view of things is not correct. And if with mindfulness you hold that understanding in consciousness, then that deep part of your intuitive mind that's been looking at things in a particular way is going to receive that information and it's going to have to find a way to incorporate it, which means it's going to have to reorganize and reprogram the way it usually perceives reality. So th these are insights. Insights are experiences that reveal that things are not the way they've always seemed to be. And People have insights, the Dharma insights. I'll use just to, okay. these are Dharma, these are insights into the three characteristics of impermanence, no self, and suffering. They're insights into emptiness, which is emptiness kind of overlaps impermanence and no self. 
it's the no-selfness of everything else. So the Dharma insights are insights that reveal the difference between the way things really are and the way they've always seemed to us. And everybody has those. But if you don't have mindfulness, you don't even know you've had them. It makes no difference. As a matter of fact, there are so many Western cognitive scientists, psychologists, and philosophers who have intellectually discovered the profound fundamental truth of no self. And there's so many physicists that know the profound fundamental truth of impermanence. But it doesn't matter how much you know something intellectually, that part of their psyche that generates their intuitive view of reality hasn't changed a single bit. None of that information has gotten through. Insight is experiential. It makes that information available in a form that can be grasped by these deep parts of your psyche if it is held in, in mindfulness, if it's, if it's held in consciousness with mindfulness. And if the relationship between that insight and the other aspects of your experience at a particular time are, if the relationship becomes clear, then, then that information gets through and then that information begins to change the way that you perceive reality. And that's what, that's what awakening is. Awakening, waking up. It's awakening from the dream that is rooted in these intuitive perceptions that, although functional for a billion years or so, are not serving you now. They just make you a struggling, unhappy, frustrated, uh, existentially insecure person with nothing to look forward to but death. <laughs> it's interesting you use the word you've been using the word intuitive because um, in, in, intuition has taken on in this culture at least in my inner culture um, that you know it comes from a deep knowingness it's a place of truth Exactly. It's a deep knowing. That but, doesn't mean but you don't know that the knowing isn't always right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it can be an erroneous knowing. Exactly. Yeah. That you're, you just could swear, you know. It comes from on high, and you experience it in here. Well, that's... Uh, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Intuition is, is inner knowing that's not arrived at intellectually or through analysis or anything else. That's exactly what intuition is. Totally correct. It's just silly to assume that all of that knowing is 100% correct. Yes. I have two questions. One is the impermanence, no self, and suffering. What? What are the? What's like? What's <laughs> like? No. But did you call it something? Is that like a like a concept or a precept or a? Oh, those are those are called <laughs> the three characteristics. <laughs> the tilakana. T means three lakana characteristics. What are they? 
Impermanence, no self, suffering. Impermanence, no self, and suffering, yeah. And you see, if you practice the Eightfold Path, which involves a certain amount of, of acquiring a certain amount of intellectual understanding to support everything else, it requires a lot of intentional conscious behavior modification in order to become a virtuous person, which also will help to alter some of your conditioning. We'll get into that aspect of it. And then there's the meditation part of it. And the meditation process will make you far more prone to having experiences that reveal the truth. So, uh, and the one that is often very easily arrived at is impermanence, which is really not a good translation because it's not that things are impermanent, it's that there are no things. There's only flux, there's only process. Thingness is something that's projected by the mind on a chunk of process that's totally inseparable from the whole and which is entirely in flux. There's no thingness in it. But in meditation, there are a variety of experiences that will reveal that your intuitive perception of things that, while they may pass away, seem to be enduring for periods of time. That that's really not what they are. And that's, that's, if you refine attentional stability and if you refine the conscious power of your mind and you're practicing meditation, in the process of watching your breath, there's several different kinds of experiences that will arise that will reveal to you that there are no things, there's only flux. Likewise, just while watching your breath, there will be experiences where you'll catch the mind in the act of constructing reality out of this flux. And when that happens, then what's revealed is emptiness, that things are not what they appear, they are only what our mind projects them as being. And in the course of meditation, there will be a large variety of different kinds of experiences that keep pointing towards the fact that there isn't one of me. There's no permanence or, or enduring quality to me. And that, indeed, there is an, an interconnectedness that completely transcends all of this illusion of separateness. When that information when that information first starts to trickle down to the part of your psyche that says, nope, you're real, the world's real, it doesn't fit. And it's very disturbing. If this is the only thing that's happened, then you will discover the third characteristic. You will have insight into suffering. 
because what will happen is at some deep level that, that, that you can't see directly, your mind is discovering that the way it's always looked at things is really the cause of its suffering. It doesn't yet have a different way of looking at things. And so it creates anxiety, depression, uh, feeling of, of meaninglessness, nihilistic tendencies, uh, despair, uh, your whole life seems meaningless, pointless, things like that. That's one way that you can have, that's one way that this kind of unfolds. But the, the way that I try to teach people is one in which you'll get really solid with the idea that the self is not real first. Then, when you realize the impermanence of things, it's not so traumatic. The other thing <laughs> is if you practice in such a way that over and over again you've discovered that my suffering is coming from inside, my joy is coming from inside, I can, I can experience joy, I can experience happiness independently of the world. Then, deep down inside, when part of you starts to discover that the world just ain't what you thought it was, you don't mind as much. It doesn't bother you. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, I guess I just won't cling to things the way I used to. <laughs> But these experiences that arise in meditation produce the insights. The insights are the realization that things aren't permanent the way they appear to be. Things aren't things the way they appear to be. That I'm not the self that I appear to be. And, of course, that suffering comes from clinging to these illusions. And that another really important insight is just a simple one that True happiness is the absence of suffering, which is something a lot of times totally escapes us because we equate happiness with this response that we have to getting something or having something that we want. But that's not real happiness. Real happiness, true happiness, transcendent happiness, is the total absence of suffering. And that's a, that is, that's a profound insight. When you have that insight, you lose so much of the compulsion to chase after pleasure. It doesn't stop you from enjoying the pleasure that presents itself. As a matter of fact, you can enjoy it much more totally because you're not going to be clinging to it. You're not going to be suffering from the knowledge that it's not going to last and you can't hold on to it. You're just going to be with it when it's there. Pleasure comes, wow, that's great. Pleasure goes, well. So this is, not, this, this is the insight into the insight into dukkha, the insight into the characteristic. We call it suffering, but it's dukkha. The insight into dukkha is that dukkha comes from the mind. Dukkha comes from clinging to illusions. And that true happiness is the absence of dukkha. So when you have these insights, 
if you hold them in consciousness, then they will change the way your mind works at the deepest level. And as with the other, you know, when we talked about the other mindfulness experiences changing required conditioning, it is magic, but it's not the kind of one shot of magic that all I have to do is see once that getting mad at my wife makes me miserable, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> it takes a little while for all the pieces to come together, and for it to filter down and to reprogram uh, sufficiently to make a permanent change in, in the way I see things and the way I behave. And the same thing is true of these other uh, the, these insights. It's, there is. You, you may have the impression, for years I had the impression, that insight and awakening was going to be this, you know, lightning bolt experience that in an instant there's total transformation, that you're going to see the truth and in that moment be changed forever. You can have experiences that make really big changes, but it's a process and it's cumulative and it takes time. It takes a variety of different experiences to put enough information together to allow your, your, your psyche to reprogram appropriately. And there's a pro it, it, you need to convince yourself. So if you have an experience in meditation there you, where you catch the mind in the act of projecting reality, so you've seen emptiness. What you're going to have to do with that is you're going to have to see that it's really true over and over again in all kinds of other ways. Then it's going to make the change. Then it's going to, then it's going to render a transformation, a permanent transformation. So there is some point, and you may or may not know when it is, but there is some point where the old way of viewing things becomes the new way of viewing things. And that's the point where the worldling becomes a, a noble one. You've achieved the first stage of enlightenment when that happens. Uh, your brain has been rewired, your mind works in a different way, and what comes in through your eyes and your ears is interpreted in a different way. It's interpreted uh, in a way that is much closer to reality. This is just the beginning of the process. It continues past that. But it's the, it's the point of transformation. It's the stream entry. It's the first stage of awakening. But it won't happen. It won't happen unless you have the ability to, first of all, experience things that reveal that your way of saying things is not correct. And be able to hold them in consciousness in such a way that that information gets communicated where it needs to be communicated to the part of your mind that's been making you see things in another way all this time. That makes sense to you?
I'm having a hard time with uh, this conflict with two different ideas. I'm sure you can make that conflict go away. So, <laughs> the magic of Chuladasa. <laughs> um, earlier you were talking about, you know, when insight begins it begins to arise, or when when it, when interesting thoughts begin to arise, or you begin to make connections about uh, you begin to see the greater patterns that you didn't mm -hmm. recognize before. Uh, and, you, and it seemed as though you were saying those those are not to be held in conscious awareness, or they're not to be entertained in any way. In fact, they're they're like I got the impression that you were you were saying those are like a distraction. But, but it seems to me the only way to, to have a great transformation is to recognize when you're having an insight that needs to be held in conscious awareness. And, and how can I tell the difference between that and a really interesting thought about a greater pattern? Yeah, yeah. what I was talking about earlier, as the insights I was talking about earlier are mundane insights, are intellectual insights. Sure. They may have great ramifications and be very valuable to you. And they are worth holding in consciousness, but they are distractions from the past. Okay? So, um, two questions here. What to do with that kind of insight, and how to tell the difference between that and the insights that you don't want to delay a second in, in holding. Okay. Um, what you do with these... If you, if you have one of these insights, uh, the way that one person put it uh, was you put it in your mental pocket for later. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't hurt to take a minute or two, however long it takes, to say, ah, okay, this is what, this is what I'm going to think about later. And fix it in your mind so that you're not going to lose it, so that later on you're going to say, I know I had a good idea, but I wonder what it was. Yeah, so there's nothing wrong with taking the time to do that. It's a really good idea. And then there's a kind of meditation, analytical meditation, where you can take this thought and you can, you can hold it, you can work with it, you can see how it connects with everything else. And that's the right thing to do with it. As far as the practice that caused it to come up, though, it's a distraction. So to take more than just enough time to make sure that you have it safely in your pocket for later um, is not such a good idea. Um, I mean, it's not a terrible idea. If you spent the rest of your meditation analyzing this wonderful idea, it's not a disaster. But you're, what's going to happen is the next day when you sit down, you'll have another different wonderful idea. And this will keep happening every time you sit down to meditate. And if you ever get around to reflecting on it, you'll realize that after the first couple of wonderful ideas, most of them are rubbish. <laughs> it's just, it's a game that your mind starts to play with itself. That, oh, we have some brilliant insight, and then we sit here and intellectually play with ourselves until then. <laughs> <laughs> And then you have to break that habit. So it's not a disaster. But So that's what you do with those kinds of mundane intellectual insights when they come up in meditation, is, is don't let them take you away from the practice that allowed them to come up in the first place. 
and more of them will come. But if you don't indulge in them, the ones that come in the future will also probably be valuable uh, insights as well. You, your mind won't start engaging in silliness. So that's what you do with those. How do you tell the difference? Well, part of how you tell the difference is, you know, of the three components of the Eightfold Path, is, is wisdom, virtue, and meditation. The wisdom part is, you know, you know what you're looking for. So, um, you, you know that, you, you know about impermanence, permanence, you know about no self, you know about emptiness, you know that suffering is a result of attachment and it's actually produced by the mind. And so then when you have an insight that is offering you a direct experience that reveals that, it, it'll be, you'll say, aha, yes, and you'll know. And you'll know this is something that you, that, that you want to, you want to hold in your consciousness as much as you can. And most especially, you don't want to lose it. You want to keep it there, and when you get up from the cushion, see, it's, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. Yes, this reveals it's true, too. You, because that's, that's doing a really important part of the work. Okay. So it's, it seems like um, what you are saying is it's important to build an intellectual, conceptual framework um, in which you can place these realizations or whatever different types of realizations they are. Um, because I'm just making an assumption, but I'm going to try and get to that. See, one of the things that does confuse me is that um, different societies and different religions, and even, when, even within one religion, uh, different traditions, and maybe even within one tradition, different people have, <laughs> have, uh, have, these, have, these, have these experiences. Yeah. I don't know necessarily how strong they are, how deep they are, but um, and sometimes people give them the same name with these different experiences yeah. of reality they've had. And yet they come up with different conclusions and a different, different ideas about how reality works based on those experiences. Um, different belief structures. And so, so it seems that if you have an experience, even though it's direct and comes up from, from unconscious and it's not conditioned by... The, 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 the ignorance that you have going on, it still seems that it gets influenced by your background and your past and your culture and your belief system. That's absolutely true. It does. So what you're saying is that you, you have a genuine experience, but you're going to interpret it on the basis of the intellectual framework that you have acquired, which is going to be a reflection of whatever tradition or religion or culture that you uh, have been citing within. That's absolutely true. Right. The reason for studying at all is that it's very beneficial to have an intellectual framework. But it doesn't need to be an elaborate, complicated, intellectual Rube Goldberg apparatus. <laughs> all you need is, is a framework uh, and there are many frameworks. And so 
you, you start having these kinds of experiences, you'll interpret them according to whether uh, you're a, uh, practicing Kabbalism, or whether you're a Christian mystic, or whether you're a Sufi, or whether you're a Taoist, whether you're a Zen practitioner, or whether you're Tibetan. There'll be a lot of different ways that these can be interpreted. What's important is that you have a valid intellectual framework and that you don't start making the mistake that the intellectual framework is reality. These, these are the two key things. You want a framework, and there are different frameworks. And the frameworks that have survived have obviously have some validity, otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't have survived. But just the fact that there are different frameworks that obviously work tells you that there's a lot of this stuff that, you know, it would be a real mistake to attach to as being truth. It's all, that's all a framework is. It's something you can hang an experience on to see how it relates to other things to fit it into a perspective. And the very unfortunate thing is that in every spiritual tradition, there are smart people who have become totally infatuated with the intellectual framework. And they've created super complex things out of that. And those things are not going to help you. The, the skeleton way down deep underneath it all is that's the part that you need. And if you try to bring all this other stuff, all this other philosophy and intellectual analysis and everything else to it, then you're, you're running the risk of losing track of what the, what the experience you had had to offer. So, see, my feeling is that of all the different religions in the world, they're all approaching the same truth. They're all going up the same mountain, and it has only one peak. But the farther down the mountain you are, the farther apart you are from everybody else. And the higher up you are, the closer together everyone is as you're approaching that, that summit. So, um, you want to keep that in mind. I feel like Buddhism provides an extremely effective, valuable framework that comes along with a very systematic practice that integrates very well with that framework. But as the Buddha said, you know, it's just a raft to get you to the other side. And you don't want to carry the raft with you. And especially you don't want to mistake the raft for the other side. It's just something to help you get there. So is it, is it worth then approaching it from the perspective of, okay, I need, I need to be able to orient myself somehow with, with a worldview that makes sense to me, that mm -hmm. works for me, that seems coherent and sophisticated and accurate. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore this, this system. At the same time, I'm going to start to build my practice, you know, to try to understand what, re what reality is your experience. Yes. And then, so then the, the, perhaps the more sophisticated aspect or the more kind of complex aspects of worldview, like 
we'll get into these really out there discussions about the details of emptiness. But if it doesn't relate to, to, if I can't figure out how I could do it with my practice, could I just say, well, I might need that later, you mm -hmm. know, but right now I'm just going to study the things that seem relevant. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good approach. It is. And another really good approach, pretty much the way I approach things is I would learn stuff and it would be there. And I'd say, okay, that's good. I know, I know that's there and uh, sounds interesting. And I would practice. And then as a result of my practice, I would know what that stuff was really talking about. And I'd go back and look at it, and I, what I discovered over and over again is at least half, if not more, of the things that were said about that stuff were obviously said by people who didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> but I could always see from my own experience, it's like, oh yeah, right, that's, that's exactly what... Yeah, so you can get some kind of confirmation or some kind of affirmation, right. and sometimes you can even go a little further, can't you? Well, the other thing about it is when you look at the theoretical framework and you recognize what it is that you've experienced, what it is that you've discovered, mm -hmm. then it also points you points where to go next. Right. right. So then you're orienting yourself yeah. through mainly through your experience, but you're using this accumulated knowledge as a yeah. kind of a like a like a point like signs yeah. to go in the direction that you that you might right. need to go. That's exactly right. And the unfortunate truth is the world's full of people that want to be spiritually wise. <laughs> they don't hesitate to tell you all kinds of things and you know, sit down and intellectually interpret what the Buddha said or what Christ said or what anybody else said and say, this is the way it is. You know. So that's why I say it out of that pile of stuff I go back to and say, these guys didn't know what they're talking about. You know. It's like you finally went to visit Paris for the first time in your life, you know, and you go back and look at the book about Paris that you read that made you decide to take the trip. That guy's never been there. <laughs> <laughs> or he just didn't go, he didn't see the Paris he saw. Well, he, he certainly didn't see the Paris I saw, yeah. Uh, now, there, you know, like, for example, I spent a lot of time studying uh, what Bernadette Roberts had to say about... Uh, Bernadette Roberts is a Catholic nun. And she had both the profound experience of uh, cessation of ego attachment, which marks stream entry in Buddhism, and the experience of no-self, the, the dissolution of the inherent sense of self, which is the experience of an arhat. Buddha. And it took me a long time because she saw a different Paris than I did. But I never had any doubt that she'd really been to Paris. And so I took the time and I made the effort to study it until I could recognize it. Well, yes, although she had a different experience of it and she described it in different terms. She'd been there too. But the real value of it is by the time I'd finished doing that, I knew more about Paris than from than I did from my own trip. Mm -hmm. I'd learned some new things. 
But when somebody's telling you that the Eiffel Tower is on the other side of Paris, and you know, you know there's something wrong. So I'm going to apologize in advance for how to not really fully thought this through yet because I can tell I'm at the beginning of a process but it's pulling at me so I'm just going to give some voice to it. And this is related to the, the purification process that you were describing and first and foremost I just want to say um, it was beautiful to hear you talk about uh, sitting with those memories and feelings that, that arise and the extent to which you have the container that keeps you feeling safe and gives continues to allow you to have a perspective where you don't lose uh, that sense of peace in the process. Um, but what I'm aware of too is that, as a psychologist, that depending on the age at which some wounds occur, for some people to kind of remember or re-experience is to literally disintegrate themselves to the point where they don't really have a container to process what you were describing and I think traditionally certainly in Western psychology but I you know correct me if this is not true but my sense is even in the Buddhist tradition often the teacher was in a sense like a person's therapist in that there wasn't this idea you were meant that everyone was meant to do it alone that you would go off into a cave you'd have the visions or the experiences and you'd come back and in a sense there was a processing that would occur that's not so dissimilar from going to see a, a therapist when you're dealing with these feelings and experiences that arise. Yeah, that's true. And I go one step further and say there are some people that reach a certain point and they really need to go see a therapist, not a meditation teacher. That, even, even an enlightened being is not necessarily the right person to help people work through some things. And sometimes just regular Western psychotherapy can deal with it the best way. And I so appreciate your saying that because um, I felt like yesterday there was sort of this paradigm forming where there was, I heard a couple people and, you know, like, well, meditation, it's faster. Or, you know, there's this long line of people waiting outside the <coughs> mindfulness booth and only one person waiting outside of the psychologist booth. And I really think ultimately there should be the booth that's both, that, you know, incorporates both. Because, for example, I have an article here right now from Jack Hornfeld where even senior meditators of 20 years, people such as him who brought really meditation to the mainstream, are in fact going to therapists themselves to deal with some of these deeper, deeper wounds. Um, and this article is called, Even the Best Meditators Have Old Wounds to Heal, by Jack Hornfield. So, um, so I appreciate your saying that, because as a therapist, I've had people who have been in a meditation-type practice for a long time that uh, feel that they've failed, in a sense, by needing to come, as opposed to the idea that actually therapy can give you a fortification to even go further in your meditation practice, mm -hmm. yeah. and vice versa. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, that's with my regard, attachment. <laughs> with regard to that cartoon, uh, most people don't need psychotherapy. Meditation will take care of their needs. But uh, how big is most? <laughs> there's a lot of people that do 
not only that, having been involved in Dharma and Dharma groups for about 40 years now, uh, nothing personal for any of you, but meditation and Dharma groups attract a much higher percentage of seriously troubled people than do bowling links. <laughs> so amongst the population of meditators, there are people with a lot of really serious psychic trauma. Meditation, meditation will bring them to a certain point, but then they'll need something else to supplement it. And then, once they have that supplement, if it's effective, then they're ready. They're ready to go for the gold. And I would, even, I would even agree to and, and take it a step further, which is to say that I think to be able to let go of an identity of a self, one needs to be able to intrinsically know that they are that they are an expression of the whole. Yes, if you exactly. grew up with not even feeling like you were a part of your family and, and not even a part of the world, how can you let go into that you're just God's ears and, and nose and eyes to experience the wonder of this manifestation over and over again? Yes. And so that's where I sometimes get a little stressed as well, is the sense of, for some people, all that keeps them together enough to not go to the edge of insanity is the little tiny splinter of what they consider them to be themselves, their yeah. self. And to even contemplate taking that away could, could yeah. be disastrous for some people. Right. Another way that I've heard it put is it's a lot easier to let go of a healthy ego. Exactly. <laughs> that one needs to understand their conditioned self to know their unconditional mm -hmm. self. And people with ordinary people, in ordinary in the sense of not having had a lot of really severe, disturbing psychological experiences in their life, letting go of self can be extremely traumatic. And uh, there's some meditation paths that basically push people into that situation that's called dukkha jnanas, the knowledge of suffering. And it comes just as they say, when, when you start to realize that things aren't they way, the way they appear to be and what you think you are, you really aren't. Uh, if, if you don't have anything else to fortify you, you can't be healthy enough to go through that without being a terrifying experience. Mm -hmm. Terribly disoriented. So that's why I think there's many practices that um, prepare a person much better psychologically. The more of this purification that you can do, purifying yourself of your condition, um, and, and I think this is basically the same thing that you were saying, the more you can become purified of your uh, acquired conditioning before you get down to trying to purify yourself of your innate conditioning, the easier it's going to be. And the safer. Yeah, the safer. Easier, safer, everything else. And you'll find not nearly so traumatic to let go of being a reasonably healthy ego construct. 